Westmount, I pray that is indeed your cry and hope. One day we will have rest. One day we will have rest in him. Take your Bible now and turn to the book of Romans chapter 7. That is our study. Romans chapter 7, that's where we are in this book. If you're visiting with us, another warm welcome to you. You can grab a copy of God's Word. Just look right in front of you, in the rack in front of you, Romans chapter 7. And we arrive this morning, here in verse 13, we arrive this morning at a well-known passage in the book of Romans. This is well-known. It's been alluded to already this morning. Let us just read it to begin our study in God's Word. We're looking at the whole portion over these two weeks from 13 to 25, but we're really going to zone in this morning on 13 to 20. So look at it with me. I'll start in verse 13. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it but sin that dwells within me. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, Lord, we do come before you in light of these verses that have been uh, both shuddering and comfort for many. Lord, we pray that we would rightly understand them. Give us strength to do that. Help us to not only understand, but to live in light of them. Father, we do commit our study this morning to you, Again, help us. We beg, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Paul says, look at verse 15. Paul says, For I do not understand my own actions. I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. And then look at verse 19. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Twice stated there, bluntly, the reality of a struggle. A tension between desire and deed. Now the tension stated by Paul here is not in debate, beloved. It's not in debate. The fact that the apostle is describing a struggle has been universally recognized by every theologian that comments on this text. That's not in debate. It is a struggle. Most plainly, we would say, even looking at those two verses I just commented on, the words of struggle are clear. What has been in debate is who this struggle describes. That's the debate. Is it a believer or is it an unbeliever? 
Now, in just plain reading, you might say, is it not Paul? So, is it not a believer? Exegetes like the likes of Augustine, Luther, and most of the Reformers believed so. And we would say this, it's certainly, if nothing else, is from the perspective of a believer, like Paul, looking on a situation... But consider what we just read. Is the perspective about this struggle of one looking back to an unregenerate state or one looking in to the regenerate state? Again, is Paul looking back or is he looking in? In verse 14, Paul says, He is of the flesh and sold now under sin. Twice in his passage, Paul says that sin dwells within him. Look at verse 17. Look again at verse 20. As such, some early fathers and some modern commentators think differently here. There have been some commentators in the early church and in the modern church that take those statements as sure evidence that the struggle Paul is describing here cannot then thus be of a believer, but only of an unbeliever. They would say this is an account of Paul looking back to his experience under the law. And that is a point we must acknowledge, especially with some of the language that's used here. So what is it, Westmount? What is it? Well, in light of that historical debate, let us approach this text a bit more deductively this morning. I pray this will be helpful, not just for this passage, but for your own study in God's word. Our outline will remind us of our hermeneutics as well as the point of this text. That's what we're going to do today. First and foremost, then, let's consider the struggle's context. The struggle's context. That's our first point. We remind ourselves first of where we are in this book. That's what we always do, isn't it? We're here in chapter 7. Why is that important? Well, remember, we're squarely in the middle of what? A section from 6 to 8 dealing with sanctification. The process ongoing of being set apart. That is the issue at hand. Recall with me, go back to chapter 6 verse 1. Paul turned the corner. Remember that? We looked at this a few weeks ago. He turned the corner to start chapter 6. He said this, What shall we say then in light of not only verses 20 and 21 in chapter 5, But what he's unveiled in chapters 1 to 5, what shall we say? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Look at that. Are we to continue in sin, moving from salvation to sanctification? This is the implication now for the apostle. Remember, he's dealt with issues of salvation in chapters 1 to 5. In fact, if you remember chapters 1 to 2, he looked at man's plight, the need for salvation. He looked at his inability, his utter inability in chapter 3, and then the means, which is justification by faith, chapter 4, and then the humanity transfer that sealed it in chapter 5. Remember, Westmount, salvation was the point of the opening chapters of Romans, the gospel of God. Now, as we move to chapter 6, Paul turns to the implications of that great salvation, which, of course, is sanctification in chapter 6 to 8. Recall again in chapter 6, The many exhortations to live rightly. Look down at verse 12, if you're still in chapter 6. Remember, he said this, Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. This is life now. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, 
but present yourselves to God as those who've been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you're not under law, but under grace, the exhortation to holy living. It stands to reason then in light of this hinge that Paul is not returning to pre-conversion matters here. Now, that's the context of this passage with respect to the flow of the argument in the book. You should say then next, hermeneutically, next, what of the context of this passage with respect to the chapter? Go to chapter 7, verse 7. Remember, then, Paul turned, he starts to zero, and what shall, what then shall we say? That the law is sin by no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin, for I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. Remember, Paul then turns, as he talks about now, relationship to law, he begins his defense of the law. And remember, we said this last week, we were reminded that the law is not the villain. Who is the villain? Sin. Sin is the villain using the law. Like a knife, like a gun, like a weapon, sin is the villain. And then that defense of the law rested, remember we ended here last time in verse 12. Look at it with me. So the law is holy. Not only is it not a villain, so the law is holy. And the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Now that verse, 12, provides important context for understanding the verses that follow. Verses 13 to 20. We just continue to track with Paul through this. Remember, first, for the first century brother, first century one with faith in Yahweh, who is now dead to that law through Jesus Christ, Romans 7, verse 4, the reflex upon hearing these inspired words would be what? And we covered this, to discard the law altogether. However, as we learned with the coming of Christ through his body, verse 14, the Mosaic law ends, but not God's law. With the coming of Christ, the Mosaic law ends, but not God's law altogether. We covered this. Remember, what God gave through Moses was for a time and for a people, and it was a reflection of the greater law of God, the standard of himself. That law of Moses was holy and righteous and good, and because that law has died through the body of Christ, listen, does not mean that all law died. Remember, it means we have a new relationship to the transcendent law of God through Jesus Christ. And this makes sense because through Jesus Christ, we have a new relationship to God, do we not? The law is Christ, Galatians 6.2. He now is the living standard for the Christian, like Paul. In Christ, remember, beloved, we're not guilty, thus dead to the demands of the law and the guilt of the law. But in Christ, we're set free to finally obey the commands of God's law. And for us in this age and time, it's holding what's in your hands, the Bible, the word left for us. And while we're on the context of this passage, let us look before and also after it, using our tool rightly here. Look at verse 21. Paul will go on to say, and we'll look at this next week, so I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I, look at this, delight in the law of God in my inner being. More to say on that next week. 
But I see in my members, outer, another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. See the inside out there. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. Again, so much we tempted to comment on there, but we will get to that next week. Paul refers, look at it, to the law of God twice in this passage that comes after. And he says it's his what? It's his delight. Now, we'll have more to say on that in verse 18 of the portion we are looking at. But for now, before we lose sense of the context, that's what we're doing to start. We just note that it's before and after chapter and book. And here it's about the goodness of God's law and the desire that the apostle says that he has to follow it. It's so important. You might say, hearing that, didn't Paul, like a good Jew, desire the law prior to his encounter with Jesus? That's a very good question. Before Christ, did not Paul want to do and to work and fulfill law? That's a very good question. In a sense, in a sense, yes. In fact, let's hear Paul describe it himself. Turn with me to Philippians 3. Let's hear Paul's testimony of his pre-converted state. And this will help us. You see how we're bringing all of our tools to bear on this passage. How did Paul talk about his relationship to the law before he was with Jesus or in Christ? This is important. So we're going to pick up here. This is one of the many places in the New Testament Paul will give his testimony. We're just going to pick it up in verse 4 of the third chapter of the letter to Philippi. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. Just note the language here. This is his testimony Pre-conversion. I have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Now listen to what he's going to say. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law. Look at this, blameless. Listen, look at that passage. Paul was absolutely all about the law prior to encountering Christ, wasn't he? It's so clear. But look at that testimony again. And we're going to map this to Romans 7. That is far from a struggle, is it? That's a boast. There's no sensitivity to sin there at all. He throws up his law credentials and says, I'm doing just fine. I'm not crying over my sin here. I'm boasting about it. In fact, one can hardly call that law desire. In fact, you know what you would call that? That's law duty, isn't it? That's what the good Jew must do. There is absolutely in this and other testimonies of Paul pre-conversion, no sensitivity to sin like you see in Romans 7. Now back to Romans The language, and we'll especially drill into this next week, is completely different to Paul and other Jews' approach to law fulfillment. This is just so important. Again, the law, as we see elsewhere in the New Testament, was Paul's duty prior to conversion, his boast. He had no sense of struggling with sin. 
By the way, you see this with the Pharisee in Luke 18. You see this with the rich young man. This is the manner of the noble Jew. Look what I've done. In fact, the whole energy of the text with Jesus and the rich young ruler is he's shocked. He's not sensitive to his sin. He's boasting about it, and that's why he walks away. And that's exactly what you see here with Paul. So same idea. So Westmount, let's consider the context here before we move forward. So let's make sure we're strapped in tightly. This passage in Romans 7 is not a matter of salvation, but it's a matter of sanctification. This is not a matter of being dead to the law, period, but alive to the law now in Jesus Christ. This is not outer compliance. This is inner desire. You see that? Very different for the converted one. This is a new relationship thus to the law that is not approached as a duty or a boast, but a desire, a heartbeat. This is no longer boast about law fulfillment, but the struggle of law living, fresh, dripping with sensitivity. Now hold on to that context as we read now verse 13. Look at it with me. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin. There it is again, producing death in me through what is good, in order that sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. Now, as you look at that verse, we should be quite familiar with this question and answer technique by now in our study in Romans. Paul has used it repeatedly in this book, and he does it when he's unfurling his argument and thinking through attacks on his argument. The apostle understands the kickback, and you would expect that with inspired words, right? And here, after defending the law, Paul knows some may be hearing him and still want to say something like this. Okay, Paul, okay, yes, the law is good, I get it. But it was a good thing, that law, that's to blame then. Fair enough, but it's the good thing, the law is to blame. Continue to hear that today. Once again, Paul dispenses with erroneous conclusions, and he says what? Strong negation by no means. No means. The strong rebuke, absolutely not. Once again, the apostle says the law is not to blame. Again, verse 13, it was sin, not the law, producing death in me through what is good. We covered this at length last time. This is sin, remember, seizing the opportunity through the law. This is verse 13, sin showing itself as sin and being thus sin beyond measure. In other words, this is sin using the law to run rampant, which it always will do. Remember, prior to law, right and wrong lacks definition in one sense. But when law comes, when law is stated, definition is clear, is it not? Sin is highlighted with law posted, aroused and springing up everywhere, it seems, because it has definition now. And that's the point here. This is the point. Let's slow it down and collect ourselves then in this text. Law is not the problem. Sin is the problem. Man, I feel like we could do just a series on that, right? The way people approach law today. Law is not the problem. Sin is the problem. And sin looks at law and sees an opportunity. Like the angry man looks at the knife, right? Sees an opportunity with law. However, the answer is not that we must be rid of law, period. 
That's missing the whole thing. For one, we are never rid of law under the standard of God, are we? Because of who he is and the standard of himself. And two, the point is not ridding ourselves of law, but here is the point. This is the framework of the gospel and reconciliation. The point now is that we're not ridding ourselves of law, but it's our relationship to law. We have a new relationship to law. And this is where we can use words like delight and desire and not duty and chore. But this new relationship to law has conditions, and this is crucial as we keep marching through this text. We looked at the context, but it now has conditions. So let's look at those conditions, which is our next point in the next verse. The struggle's conditions. Paul now sets the table for the next step in his argument, verse 14. Look at it with me. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. Now, fresh off a defense of the law, Paul can say, for we know, look at this, that the law is spiritual. Stop there. In other words, Romans, Christians, you know this. You know this of law, that it is spiritual. And this has been Paul's point, especially when you think of verse 12. And this is how it has always been under Moses, or listen, in Christ. The law is from above, from God. It is God. Good. Yes, the law is spiritual, meaning the law came down from above by way of Moses to Sinai and to Israel, just as the law came down from above by way of the Son of God in Christ to us. See that? And that is true. And once again, as if to say, that is not the problem. Law defined is not the problem. Here's the problem. Look at it, end of verse 14. Here it is. But I, says Paul, am of the flesh, sold under sin. I am of the flesh. I am material. Let's get to that word there. I am of the flesh. I'm material. I'm physical. I'm merely human. I have a body that, remember chapter 5, died in Adam. A body that was corrupted in that garden, in him. I have a body, flesh, that was sold under sin that day in the garden. Remember, we covered this in chapter 5. But Christian, like Paul, you have undergone a humanity transfer from Adam to Christ. We've covered this. Yes, we are now members of the humanity of life. Remember? However, and this is a key, and let's slow it down even more to make sure we're tracking here. It is true, we have a humanity transfer. But listen, if we get back to Paul here, this is his account. You may take Paul out of Adam, but you cannot take Adam fully out of Paul. Does that make sense? You can take him out of Adam, but there's still a remnant of Adam in Paul, and it's called flesh. And this really is, this is the key to understanding this passage, Westmount. Paul, like all of us Christian, caught between the already and the not yet. Paul, like all of us Christian, renewed spiritually, inwardly, our soul is reborn. But what? But what still remains? This skin, this bones that is dying and decaying, right? Christian, you are renewed inwardly, but outwardly you're wasting away. Which means... 
2 Corinthians 4.16 puts it precisely, our outer self is wasting away. And think of the converse then, but our inner self is being renewed day by day. That is the spirit and the flesh, the inner and the outer. And that is who we are. So much more on this coming up in chapter 8 to cap it. Right, Our soul is alive and redeemed, yet our body is dying. What a tension. What a tension. Listen, now think about this in light of these opening chapters of Romans and where we are now with sanctification. So let's frame it. Justification, as we learned, is one's status, one's right standing before God, one's inward reconciliation with God, one's soul being saved. That's justification. But right standing before God in judgment does not remove the believer from the presence and influence of indwelling sin that resides in your outer members, in your flesh, your body of flesh day to day. Jeremy teed us up very well downstairs this morning talking about obedience. This is the tension in obedience. Renewed soul, decaying flesh. In fact, look at the expression there, verse 14, of the flesh, Sarkinos refers to the remnant of humanity that remains unredeemed. Let me say that again. That refers to the remnant of humanity, the flesh in this context, that remains unredeemed. The physical part, the flesh literally that not only contains death, and what's your proof that it contains death? Your body is dying, is it not? That's how you know, saved, but your body's dying, so that remnant contains death. But it doesn't just contain uh, death, it also contains what? Sin. And the evidence of that? You sin. Death and sin still in your outer members. Indwelling sin in our fleshly members, that is what's in view here. And church, our flesh is what is, and what is our flesh? Let's look at it this way, our flesh is a very willing instrument to sin, is it not? And that's what defines the struggle, does it not? You're shocked at how easily your flesh wants to sin and how it will create conditions to sin. You struggle because your spirit is renewed and you love God's law and you don't understand why your flesh betrays you. Our spirit is renewed already, but our flesh not yet. But rest is coming, as we sang. But listen, consider that. Because those are the conditions for the struggle, are they not? Inner renewal, outer decay. That's fertile ground for a struggle. You hear it said, and in many cases it's true, the spirit is willing and the flesh is weak. Said Jesus, said us. In so many cases, that is it. The law is spiritual. And with renewed spirits, our relationship to it is changed. Remember, through Christ, redeem mankind's relationship to law changes. Moving from denial, duty, or boast to embrace desire and delight. But also with such conditions of spirit and flesh, we must recognize, and here's the point Paul is taking us through, at pains in this chapter, there will be struggle because you're in the already but the not yet. And consider the playing field. Our inner man and woman is renewed and ready. But our outer self is quite the opposite, decaying and disobedient. Again, these are the conditions for us post-salvation. 
and hence the reality of our sanctification. These are the conditions for us growing in Christ's likeness, which Christian, if you're a Christian here today, you are. You may not feel it if you focus on your flesh, but you are growing in Christ's likeness. The spirit already is being renewed day to day. The flesh is decaying day to day. And the flesh's redemption, of course, is coming. Is coming. In fact, let's go back to Philippians 3 for a moment. Philippians 3, 20, 21. You can look at it with me. Again, this is so good because it's in the context of the exact same verses that we just read earlier. Paul is going to cap this, and this was his testimony before, right? His proudness or his pride in the law. I'm talking about what those, right, that aren't renewed do. He has scathing words for those in this chapter. But then he talks about the race and straining and striving toward the goal, pressing on for the upward call. There is your wonderful motif of sanctification, but what's the finish line? What's the tape that you're going to bust through? Look at Philippians 3.20. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And look at this, beloved. 21. Who will transform our lowly body... And we could say with Romans 7, our decaying flesh to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. So good. Again, you can certainly anticipate what these conditions set us up for, right? And it is a struggle. A struggle, though, as we read there, as we go back to Romans, a struggle that has an end, that has a, a glorious glorious graduation ahead. Now, however, before we move there too quickly, right, and we move forward too quickly, let's be clear about a couple things. When you are in a text like this, and you're talking about spirit and flesh, indwelling sin, indwelling spirit, we just need to make sure we're biblically responsible before we move forward. This is crucial to our sanctification and accountability before the Lord. So let's make sure we address a couple things before we move on, number one, this is not about having two different natures within us. You've heard that said, right? In fact, you've probably heard an illustration, and some of these, the worst illustrations, right, always sound good. They have some meaning, and what is it? White dog, black dog. I know you've heard that. Which dog are you feeding today? Which dog are you feeding in a moment? That's very bad. And it's unbiblical understanding of the new man. We are not two natures. We're not two things fused together. Listen to 2 Corinthians 5.17. And let's just be Berean and think through this. If anyone is in Christ, he is what? A new creation, singular. He has not added a new piece to himself. And then each day or each moment, he needs to decide which Fido that he's going to give stuff to, that's not the way it works. This is renewal of a nature. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. The reality is you have a new indwelling inner spirit. Praise God. But still carry around, right, an outer, a packaging in members, if you will, a body of flesh, listen, with propensities and bents and its own bent for sin. And that flesh is not yet redeemed, but it will be. But listen, as you wait for redemption, your flesh doesn't, does it? 
it gets busy. Two, and logically flowing from that, we are still responsible for our sin. Let's not walk away from Romans 7 thinking anything but that. Let's be clear here. The flesh is ours. Is that not true? It's our flesh. Again, to dismantle some harmful cliches, you may protest, and again, because it sounds and it feels good, to say the devil made you do it, or the flesh made you do it. It sounds good, and it pacifies in milliseconds, doesn't it? But the reality is, listen, beloved, you did it. We did it. That's the reality. We sinned. There's no one to blame. See the garden. In fact, one of the great realities of being a new creation, and let's turn quickly to the hope in that. Yes, you did it. You're accountable for your sin, but we've studied that. One of the great realities of a new creation is this, is that you are now freed from the power of sin and death and are now finally able to do what? To not sin. That's the point. You're able now to resist sin and obey God. And of course, that doesn't mean you will not be tempted, but it means you can resist. 1 Corinthians 10.13, you can resist. And with that is the ongoing accountability for your sin. Yes, the sacrifice of Christ's body and blood bore the penalty for your sin. Christian, don't leave today without remembering that, as we remembered at the table. Ultimately, Christian, you will not be judged for your sin eternally. And again, I say, praise God. However, you are always accountable for your sin before God. In another sense, in a living sense. And where do we go for that, Paul? In the context of the new creation passage, in the very same chapter in 2 Corinthians, talking about a new creation, in the same context, said this in verse 10, for we must all appear before what? The judgment seat of Christ. Christian, we have one new nature that remains accountable to God, saved from eternal damnation, but answerable for present-day daily action. Okay, we've looked at the struggle's context. We've looked at the struggle's conditions. Now we're ready to look at the struggle itself and the conscience in it. That's our final point, the struggle's conscience. And let's read the remaining verses here. Really, they're a tight unit. Really can't pull anything out of this other than to look at what it's saying. Look at verse 15. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me. That is, qualifier, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. At this point, I trust if we have kept the context and grasped the conditions that introduce these verses, as you've just heard them, if all of that you're holding on to, then Paul's struggle is clear. It's clear. However, I will mention one additional note that will shed a, just a confirming light on what manner of Paul, old Paul or new Paul, is writing the words of these struggles. And we need to note this to be true to the text. As we turn to verse 15, 
Did you notice the verbs and the way that he's speaking? They're now in the present tense. He's describing a present struggle. He's not describing something in the past. In fact, if we were to look at in the original every single verb, literally in verses 15 to 20, every single verb except one is in the present tense. That is describing Paul now, his present reality in light of the first coming of Jesus but also still with flesh at present as he waits for his second coming. That's so key. This in-between, this in-progress Westmount is the heart of sanctification. Yes. And at the heart of sanctification is this struggle right here, the spirit and the flesh. And this struggle, can it not, Westmount, can it not, leave us absolutely bewildered at times? Can it not? Sometimes in the wake of your sin you say what? Who am I? Who am I? And Paul says, look at verse 15, and we relate here, don't we? I do not understand my own actions. And listen to me clearly, flowing from this text. Christian, that should be your cry in the wake of your sin as well. Not pacifying, not denying, not sideswiping. Your cry, if you're a true Christian, should be, I don't understand what I'm doing. Because it's not who I am. That is the cry of every believer who stands in the wake of his or her sin. That is the struggle's conscience. This is the cry of the Spirit in the wake of the flesh. Paul expresses this, look, twice in these verses, verse 15 and verse 19, see it? That's two ways to decry the same struggle. I want to in spirit, but what do I do? I do in flesh. And see here, verse 16, this is so important practically, when Paul does wrong, again, we've noted this, he does not deny and he doesn't shift blame. What does Paul do? Look at verse 16, so insightful. What does he say? If I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. In other words, I agree with the law. It is good. I broke it. I did wrong, right? Listen, only a believer says that. Is that not true? Only a believer says that. And listen, only a believer, we learn from 1 Corinthians 2.16, rightly understands the things of God, his standard with his mind. Paul then points right to the source of the wrong in him. Now note this. He doesn't point to outside him. Right, He still is within the domain of body. He doesn't point to the environment. He doesn't point to circumstances. He points to the body. Look at verse 17, and he says what? So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. We don't need to qualify again the responsibility for sin, but we just need to reiterate this. The inner man, the indwelling spirit, is renewed. The inner man does not seek sin. And if it's truly born again, it won't. But the unredeemed flesh does, still in the body, but the outer members. And the indwelling sin in those members, in the flesh, does seek it. Remember, it's not redeemed yet. We cover this. Paul is not blaming personified sin here. Listen, he's simply highlighting the reality that this struggle is due to the remaining sin that resides in his flesh. In his outer body. That's what he's saying. 
Paul reiterates that same point. Look at verse 20. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but listen again, but sin that dwells within me. And in context there, in his flesh. Again, we're going to pick this up next week. The indwelling sin is at work in his members. Finally, one last item that we must note in these verses here before we end, and it's found in verse 18. And this is precisely what makes it the struggle's conscience. Look with me at it. For I know that nothing good dwells in me. That is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. Paul looks at himself and says, I know nothing good dwells in me. But note, he doesn't just stop there. This is not just down on himself or a really perverse anthropology here. He continues, and look, he qualifies where there's a lack of goodness. This is not that there's absolutely not. I'm a Christian, redeemed, right? And there's absolutely nothing good. Look, he says, I know nothing good and dwells in me. That is, grammatically, he's qualifying what he's talking about. Here is where there's no good in my flesh, not in my inner being. So in my flesh, there's the domain resides no good. Do you see that? Now, there's no surprise here. This is indeed, as we've learned, where sin still lies, in the flesh, in the outer members, in the unredeemedness of our being. The spirit indwells Paul's inner man. The spirit has renewed his soul and his mind, all the good in Paul, but this new creation is still cloaked in flesh. And listen, the flesh clings tightly. And the flesh is where sin finds a nice home. Is that not true? Like a willing host always, the flesh makes sure sin feels very comfortable. The flesh, as we've covered, holds one end of the rope in the struggle. Yet if Paul was speaking of being unconverted, there would be no other end, would there be? If this was it, an account before Christ, then there's no struggle, is there? Just like there is no struggle for righteousness for the unredeemed around us. Is that not true? They're not struggling. Believe you me. And if you're not careful, like Asaph in Psalm 73, it can be frustrating, can't it? Where is their struggle? But here is a passage that enlightens what's going on around us. Because apart from Christ, the spirit is dead, so there's no spiritual desire. In fact, for some, it may be a boast that they're doing just fine. And of course, that is very, very different to the one indwelt by the spirit, is it not? Look at the middle of verse 18. For, says Paul, I, says Paul, have the desire to do what is right. Recognizing this is an inward desire. His flesh has no ability. No ability in the flesh to do it. But I have the desire. The desire there. Look at that word, thelo, in the Greek. That means the will. This is the inner drive now to do what is right. This is the important housing that is needed to follow Christ. This is what the prophets spoke about when they were talking about the new covenant and Ezekiel and so on. You need a new engine that will then obey my statutes. Ezekiel 36. This is not only language. Listen, that's the old. This is not only language the New Testament never uses to describe the unregenerate of a willingness. 
But it's not language the same book ever uses to describe the unbeliever, ever. Listen, remember what we've learned, the lust, the seeking, the desire, all same idea of the unregenerate is what? Chapter 1 and 2, truth suppression. You want to know what the desire of an unregenerate is? It's to do the exact opposite of what God says. That's the desire, the inner man desire of the unregenerate is truth suppression. And that's what we've learned in this study. That's what the unredeemed seek in their inner being. Fallen mankind, the moralizer, remember? The one not seeking God, Romans 3.11. We studied that. That one is far from desiring the law of God. And this is Paul's point. It's precisely his point. Their conscience is not in struggle, but their conscience can be seared, 1 Timothy 4.2. It's only the man, the new man, It's only the creation, the new creation, that can finally seek God's law rightly. Now again, so much more to say about this next week in the upcoming verses. Especially, the text actually gets quite practical. We're going to address that remedy in full. However, before we get to the practical, before we get to the practice, we must do this in Romans 7. We must. Before we can even talk practice or living or daily walk, We need to ensure that it doesn't apply to us, or that it does apply to us, I should say. We need to ensure that the practice is one you can do. We must do that, because it's going to be futility if we don't. Look again at verse 18. For I have the desire to do what is right. I have the desire to do what is right. Paul says, Now he has the desire. Listen, not the duty, not the boast, the desire. And the question is, beloved, do you? Do you? Do you have the desire to do what's right? Now stop before you quickly answer that. Search your heart. Do you truly have the desire to do what's right? Think about your week. Think about your month. Think about this past year. Do you have the desire to do what's right? Do you really desire to do what's right? Is that truly the engine within you? And you say, how will I know? You say, I don't know. I'm feeling confused. I- How do you look at this? How do you look at it? Rules? Restrictions? Oh, life would be better if I didn't have that verse. A chore? A duty? A notch board? At least let me do these things and then I can get on living. Because that's what I desire. Yes, I do it, I do it, I do it. Is it a struggleless boast? I've done it. Well, let me get on living. I've done the things God wants me to do. Let me live. Or listen, is obeying this law your heart's desire? Beloved, does your heart beat for this? Do you want to align your life with this? Is this what you want? That's a struggle, isn't it? That's a struggle. What is your struggle? And you will know, beloved, believe me, we know the omniscience of God that knows men's hearts. What is your struggle? Is it this? 
and obeying this? Or is it just staying out of trouble? Is your struggle hiding sin? Is your struggle saving face? Or does your indwelling spirit struggle with indwelling sin? Oh God, who will free us Christians from this body of death. And that's where we're going, because that's where the text is going. But please, ask yourself that question as we ready our hearts, not just for this text next week, but for the rest of Romans. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, we thank you that in Christ we are free. Free from the raging power of sin. Oh, it is still indwelling and present, but it has no power over us. And Father, we rejoice. And Lord, we know that it is not because of our law-keeping and even our desire that you keep us close. It's because you hold us close to you. Oh, Father, forgive us when we think it's anything else. So Lord, help us now as we continue our worship in song and fellowship later, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.